The brains of musicians are very different from non-musicians, you know, because we've done musical training for so long, you know, we have things that we do better on tests of like auditory attention, uh, auditory working memory, things like this, executive function. But some of the work from Nina's lab has shown even if you took music as a kid and then you stopped lessons but, and then you got tested as an adult later, you still kept some benefits even though you, you stopped playing for a while. So other labs have shown even short-term music training, like you could be a non-musician and I put you through a study, okay, you learn some basic piano for like 20 minutes a day, that could improve your perceptions um, and cognitive abilities. So really, yeah, so basically it's a spectrum, right? Musicians who are expert musicians, professionals, do do much, much better than, for example, an amateur musician, but any musical training can be pretty helpful. Welcome to RX Chill Pill, the podcast that strengthens your resilient mind every time you listen to the extraordinary stories, expert tips, and meditations to elicit your relaxation response, the antidote to your stress response. I'm Dr. Juna Bobby. I'm a physician and mom specializing in mind, body, and lifestyle medicine. Find out more about me, my personalized online courses on procrastination and mindset coaching for kids, teens, and adults at mindbodyspace.com. Hi, I'm so happy to have a conversation today with Dr. Karen Chan Barrett. I met Karen when she gave a fascinating talk as part of a special presentation called Music and the Mind with world-renowned soprano Renee Fleming at the Juilliard School in New York City. This program was inspired by Ms. Fleming's other work, a collaboration with the National Institute of Health in association with National Endowment for the Arts called the Sound Health Initiative. The Music and the Mind series was created for general audiences, and the program explores the power of music in relation to our health and neuroscience. On that evening at Juilliard, the highlight was improvisation and the brain. Dr. Karen Chan Barrett, PhD, represented Dr. Charles Lim's Music and Perception Lab at the University of California, San Francisco. She discussed the research on the neuroscience of musical creativity and improvisation. Karen tells us about the fascinating research on the impact that music and musical training has on our brain development. I'll give you a hint. It's not just about listening to classical music. She discusses how they gather data in the lab on creativity and even improv comedy and how it maps out on the brain. Karen also tells us the surprising reason she, a classically trained pianist, pivoted to become a neuroscientist and how her husband, a classically trained cellist, taught himself into a whole new career. If you have kids taking music classes or kids who are interested in STEAM, that's science, tech, engineering, arts, and math fields, get them to listen along with you. You may even get them to practice more and start the conversation about how all of these seemingly disparate fields connect. Hi, Karen. Thank you so much for being here. I know it's a strange time right now because you're home with your kids. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I have a I have a 21-month-old 20, uh, month, baby now, uh-huh. so, and his Theo. And yeah, we've been, um, you know, he had just started preschool uh, this year. And so my husband and I have been catching every round of sickness that goes around in preschools. And so he's currently home with us. So like everyone, I think I feel, you know, the struggle of trying to be full-time mommy and daddy, and then also try to every now and then take care (laughs) of the house and work. (laughs) And tell us about what you do at uh, this fascinating laboratory that you work with, with Dr. Charles Lim, where you investigate music perception. Yeah. Yeah. Creativity. Yes. And improvisation. Yeah. That is so amazing. I am a postdoctoral scholar. Uh, My PI, which is the head of our lab, Charles Lim, is- Principal investigator. Principal Mm -hmm. investigator. He is a cochlear implant surgeon. Uh-huh. Just so if in case you don't know what it is, um, a cochlear implant is a surgical device that's inserted uh-huh. into the ear of people who are deaf, pretty much, and it helps restore their hearing. Charles is, a, as, an, as a scientist, he is a scientist and a surgeon, but he's also a musician. He's a really great jazz musician. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he's in the Department of Otolaryngology, because that's where he does his surgery, but our lab is located there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a postdoctoral scholar, which means I am doing basically a research fellowship kind of with him after I've already finished my PhD. Our lab in particular kind of has two research interests. We study music perception and cochlear implant users because while 
cochlear implants are amazing at restoring mm-hmm. speech for deaf people. Uh-huh. What's really hard still is complex sound perception. So hearing, you know, in noisy environments or hearing music or hearing, uh-huh. you know, very rich acoustic information. So that's really hard for CIE. And you just and you wrote about um cochlear implants in kids and how they process emotions and speech, yeah. right? Yes, so that's exactly. a very subtle kind of yeah. uh brain function where you are able to draw emotions out of somebody's speech or the way yeah. they're talking or their tone. Yeah, yeah. So uh-huh. you have, you know, something like emotion perception can be difficult for cochlear implant users because if you think about it, a lot of our conveyance of emotion is in the mm-hmm. inflection of our voice, right? I can say something like, I'm so happy or I'm <laughs> sad, right? And it's the uh-huh. voice change, right? And that is actually pretty difficult for a lot of cochlear implant users to perceive. Mm-hmm. And naturally how much that's part of our human communication, uh, that really affects their social development as well, right? So we in general look at everything from emotion perception to the impact of music training on hearing to how well cochlear implant users hear aspects of music. Like, can they tell Mm -hmm. different instruments apart? Can they tell rhythm? Can they tell differences in pitches, right? These are all parts of our research put into complex sound perception and cochlear implant users. Um, That's fascinating. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, I think the more we know about how cochlear implant users hear very complex uh, sound, the better we can hopefully inform re- evolving the technology. Something that's really interesting is that cochlear implants haven't been around for that long. Um, how long Charles, have they been around? I would say maybe 30, 50 years. Charles is probably one of the second generation of cochlear implant surgeons. Uh-huh. Um, so pretty- when does one get it? Well, Just I kind to- of... It kind of depends. Um, uh-huh. It kind of depends when, how you had your hearing loss, uh-huh. right? So let's say you lost your hearing as an adult. Well, then you're probably going to get a cochlear implant later on. That's assuming you and your doctors want one, right? It is still mm-hmm. surgery. It's invasive. There are, you know, it's a surgery, right? So I think, mm-hmm. you know, that really they have to make that personal decision with their doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say we are seeing better outcomes in terms of better music perception and complex sound perception if you implant earlier. So mm. for example, in my study on pediatric CI users, right? If let's say you're a baby and you're born deaf, well, maybe you have your doctors talking with you about options and you implant right away within the first year. Then you, you know, your brain is more plastic when you're a child, right? It's mm-hmm. more able to, uh, you know, evolve and change and adapt. And so, you know, in general, I think there are many good outcomes if you can implant earlier rather than later. But it all kind of, it really is on an individual basis. It kind of depends on each particular user and their team of doctors. Wow, that's so fascinating. And uh, the other part of what you guys do is study creativity, right? In particular, improvisation. And you work with a lot of musicians and even comedians. Yeah. So the reason we also study creativity is, um, as I mentioned, Charles is a jazz musician. So he's very Uh into improvisation. That's something he does all the time. And so our lab does like to look at the neural correlates of improvisation. Um, We mostly started with musicians just because Mm -hmm. music is the kind of uh, stimuli that you can, you know, study relatively easier compared to other art forms. For example, if you're going to put someone in an FRI machine, they have to keep their body relatively still so that you can get a clear picture of their brain. And we were able to find ways to do that in the fMRI scanner with musicians. Uh They basically held a special keyboard on their lap. And if you just play with your fingers, you can keep your head still. So you can see why studying music would be easier than studying something like dance, right? Mm-hmm. Dance has so much movement, you can't keep your head still. <laughs> um, so basically, yeah, we studied the neuroscience of musical improvisation, and Charles's previous studies have looked at what happens in the brain of expert jazz musicians when they're doing that versus playing something mm-hmm. memorized, or what happens in their brains when they're collaboratively playing with a partner instead of you know just playing alternating uh, memorized tunes. So that was some someone of is actually outside of the MRI machine collaborating with the musician inside, right? Yes, yeah, so, yep, exactly. And then you're measuring their brain activity. Yeah. So in uh, the Donay et al. 2014 paper from our lab, basically there we used a paradigm called trading fours. It's a jazz technique where you know you play four bars, then your partner plays four bars, and you go back and forth creating together. Uh-huh. And we had the participant line the fMRI scanner. 
They play for four bars. And then Charles or the, another researcher was out in the control room <laughs> also playing four bars, alternating with them. So the one in the control room is not getting scanned. They just serve to be the partner for your playing. Right. But we looked at what happens in the brain of the participant when they're trying to do this improvised conversation with another musician. So you have to be a musician to work in your lab? <laughs> <laughs> I will say you don't have to be a musician, but you definitely have to have some interest in music. <laughs> well, I took piano. It. I took piano when I was younger. There you go. Yeah. Wait, so you're, you're a pianist also, right? I am. So actually, Wait, so I... So Charles is at Peabody. Is he, he's a professor there still? No, he, he, we, once we, we were at Peabody and Johns Hopkins, but we moved to UCSF. But yes, he was faculty. He had like a joint appointment between UCS, uh, sorry, Johns Hopkins Medical School and uh -huh. Peabody. And Peabody I, and I, is the musical uh, school, the conservatory, right? Right. So Peabody Conservatory of Music is um, the music conservatory within the larger Johns Hopkins University. And uh -huh. that's actually where Charles and I met. Um, oh. I, am, I am a pianist by training. In fact, I would say... Well, I've kind of always done both. I went, I started piano at age five. Uh -huh. um, very, you know, did competitive classical piano. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> then when I went to college, I definitely still wanted to do music. So I mm -hmm. did major in music, but I also was interested in neuroscience. So I was doing mm -hmm. a double major at college. Just kind at of Johns Hopkins. At Wellesley College, actually. So, oh, Wellesley. Okay. Yeah. So I went to Wellesley College for my undergrad. And uh -huh. I did both music and neuroscience. And after I finished Wellesley, I loved, you know, I really just felt like I wanted more time to really get better at my instrument, like really uh -huh. have time to practice and really focus uh -huh. on it. So that's when I went to John's uh, Peabody Conservatory at Johns Hopkins. Wow. University. So you went to conservatory after. Yeah, I went to conservatory oh. afterwards. And I did uh -huh. dual, dual master's degrees at Peabody. Uh -huh. I did um, a piano performance, uh, so a conservatory, mm -hmm. um, you know, master's degree. But I also did uh, musicology, the academic musicology as a master's degree, too. And I loved it. I thought the whole experience of music school was wonderful. Like, I got mm -hmm. to practice all I wanted. I was around musicians all the time. It was fantastic. Uh -huh. But in the end, I kind of felt realized that it wasn't quite the right fit for me. And this sounds totally silly, but the reason no. was because I'm all your performances are at night, and okay. I'm a morning person. So. <laughs> I just like I remember like falling asleep in one of my concerts. I just like I was really struggling with the whole night performance thing. So I said, "Okay, That's so funny." I mean, <laughs> you, look, you have to look at these things. It's a yeah. lifestyle thing, right? It's exactly. health. Yeah, yeah. Like I kind of like I loved music, but I was like, "Gosh, I just don't like working at my work time." You know, <laughs> like if I could give a concert at nine a.m., I'd be golden. But they don't really do that. So. <laughs> I'm kind of a homebody. So I was like, you know, if I become a performer, I'm going to have to travel. Yes. So I just realized, you know, lifestyle wise, it wasn't quite what I wanted. Of course, it was a wonderful experience. I made amazing friends. I actually met my husband there. Yeah. So it was fantastic. He was a classical cellist. And he also had always dreamed of being a quartet cellist. But he, like me, is a morning person. <laughs> so we both left each other and like, Maybe this isn't gonna work. Like maybe, maybe as much as we love music, unless they switch to early morning concerts, this isn't gonna work. Um, <laughs> oh well, you could always travel to another country and uh, <laughs> yes. travel along a time zone. That's <laughs> true. Be like, now we're doing nine a.m. concerts. You know, it was some great things happening, but I was like, you know what? I, this isn't quite working. But then what I wanted to do, I was like, you know, I really still love science. Maybe I should look about going back into, you know, being an academic musician. Like I had always wanted to be a professor. You know, I, uh -huh. I my, my music professors at Wellesley College, um, Martin Brody, Charles Fisk, Lois Shapiro, they were amazing and so inspiring. Uh -huh. And I always wanted to be a teacher back then. And so it's like, well, maybe I'll look into something else. And then as I was, you know, Googling around, I was like, oh, there's this new field called music cognition. I could do both wow. music and science. Um, so, so you, wow. So you just figured that out on Google. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Google, you asked. Yeah, I was like, I wonder what I can do, you know? And this is uh -huh. my second my second year of the master's is when you start applying to schools. So I was like, okay, well, I, I found I was looking into music reception and there were a couple programs and I applied to do a PhD and ultimately uh, chose Northwestern University where they had a PhD in music cognition that was centered in music, the music department. Now mm -hmm. people study music cognition from a lot of perspectives. You can be in psychology, you could be in neuroscience, you can be in linguistics, computer science, right? It's a very interdepartmental 
field. So you can kind of do it however way you want. I, at the time, really thought I wanted to be a music professor. So I was looking for a music-based music cognition program. And so I got into the PhD at Northwestern. Will and came with me. We moved there together. And yeah, it was lovely. I mean, it's interesting because it became a, kind of a music cognition and music theory program because not many departments at that time were advertising for music cognition like teachers, right? More, more, more likely you become hired as a musicologist or a music theorist and you teach basic music theory, basic musicianship classes, and then also get to do music cognition. So sure, my- most people haven't even under, don't even realize how many different music cognition fields there are. Exactly, exactly. So at Northwestern, you know, we were taught how to teach music theory, you know, music theory pedagogy and, you Uh know, ear ear training and all sorts of stuff. So I did the very um, fundamental music theory training as well as music cognition. And at the same time, I was still a neuroscientist. So I was, I got a co-advisor named Nina Krauss. She runs one of the big auditory neuroscience labs that was doing music perception research. And Mm -hmm. I joined her lab too. So I was kind of in two departments as I was doing my degree. I was with the music department, but also working with Nina's um, auditory neuroscience lab. Uh huh. Well, at Nina's lab, what they really study is um, subcortical. So it's kind of these, they use EEG, which are the brain scalp responses. And they look at subcortical, so low level responses from the brain, as well as cortical, you know, higher level responses mm-hmm. of the brain to music. Um, my research there at the time during my disser- uh, dissertation was more focused on the impact of music training uh, and neuroplasticity. So I think I mentioned before, plasticity is how the brain changes with learning and experience. And I, at the time, was really interested in how musicians, through their musical training, change their brain, how how our training alters our brains compared to Mm non-musicians. So uh, that's what I was really working on with her, as well as my own dissertation was on attention like if music is such a complex acoustic phenomenon how are we able to perceive it especially if you hear multiple voices at the same time think baroque polyphony like bach bach cannons or fuse you know how can we hear something that rich like that's all hitting our brain as a massive sound do we listen to different parts of the music uh differently because they are very perceptually salient we mean they pop out in the music they're very attention grabbing Mm-hmm. Or do I hear polyphony different from my husband because we play different instruments? What is the impact of our training on our attention? So these were kind mm-hmm. of the things that I was looking at. Um, in and what, did you, what did you find um, different about musicians' brains at that time? Um, definitely that um, I was mostly looking just within my own dissertation group. Was So there's, there's two studies that I did. In terms of attention to polyphony, um, for example, musicians tend to pay preferential attention to the line played by their own instrument. So if you're a we cellist, hope. yeah, uh-huh. yeah you like hone in on yeah. your own instrument. If you're uh-huh. a cellist listening to a duet between a cello and a flute, you're gonna automatically pay attention to the cello because your training has kind of has kind of honed your brain to like pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, we also discovered is that the brains of musicians are very different from non-musicians, you know. Because we've done musical training for so long, you know, we have things that we do better on tests of like auditory attention, uh, auditory working memory, things like this, executive function. So how long did musicians have had to done music to show these changes? Was it like five years, 10 years, 15 years? You know, any training. I mean, like the more training you did, the more of an expert you were in terms Mm -hmm. of your, you know, a highly trained musician will do better than an amateur musician. But some of the work from Nina's lab has shown even if you took music as a kid and then you uh-huh. stopped lessons but and then you got tested as an adult later, you still uh-huh. kept some of the benefits even though you, you stopped playing for a while. So wow. even research from other labs has shown even short-term music training. Like you can be a non-musician and mm-hmm. I put you through a study. Hey, you learn some basic piano for like 20 minutes a day. That mm. can improve perceptions um, and cognitive abilities so really improve your brain functioning yeah essentially yeah and it's not you know widespread it's not everything gets better but things that might be related to music will get better like you know auditory you know attention and auditory working memory and you know motor control right this makes sense because what about emotional control i don't know if anyone has actually tested that um Uh i don't 
done much about our own emotional control and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, so basically it's a spectrum, right? Musicians who are expert musicians, professionals do do much, much better than, for example, an amateur musician. But any musical training can be pretty helpful. Okay. Um, so, so all those kids out there taking music lessons, yes. don't don't give up. Don't stop. <laughs> I'm like to the choir here, but like, uh-huh. yeah. And then, and then you went on to how did you meet um, Dr. Lim? Yeah, so as I, it was my last year of my master's degree, and Charles was just starting his lab at Johns Hopkins. He had just published his first paper on musicians and creativity, and uh, I just met him through a colleague, and I met we we just kind of got along. I actually didn't have time to work with him while I was at Peabody because I was already on my way off to the PhD program. Like I had already gotten in and was about to leave Hopkins. But, you know, during my PhD, I just kept in touch with him because he was really nice and very friendly. So I was five years in at Evanston at Northwestern when Peabody asked me if I would come teach a class on music cognition. So basically, I moved to Baltimore while I was still in my PhD, and I was teaching a class on music cognition, both at, it was a Peabody graduate class on an introduction to music cognition. I also taught the Johns Hopkins undergrads during their winter session. So I taught a couple classes, but I was also writing my dissertation. Yeah, so I was, uh, I was just, so I reconnected with Charles again, because he actually, um, he sponsored my class on music cognition at Peabody. So we just kind of reconnected. While I was finishing my dissertation there, there was, we also hosted the Music Mind Meaning Conference at Peabody in 2014. It was a music cognition conference. You know, I was thinking, oh, you know, maybe after I finish writing, I would love to keep working with Charles. He and I just get along so well. And mm-hmm. you know, we had talked about a postdoc with him. But then he got this amazing offer here at UCSF. He was, mm. you know, he's like, oh, I'm considering it because, you know, uh, it's a great opportunity. He's like, but I'm sorry if that affects your plans. I'm like, you know, could you talk <laughs> about me coming with you? And he looked at me like, what? Is that a possibility? Like you could come with me? I'm like, you know, yeah, my husband is a software engineer. So like oh. he at, at will after Jello went into software engineering. So wow. I was like, you know, Silicon Valley is the place he wants to be anyways. Maybe we, I could come with you. I finished my dissertation. Charles actually came out to San Francisco first and set up the lab. And I, I took a brief break after my dissertation to uh, work for um, a nonprofit academic musicology organization mm-hmm. um, for a year. And then I followed him out here. And yeah, I started my postdoc with him. Amazing. And he did that uh, TED Talk in 2011, right? I remember seeing that TED Talk. Can you tell me about what what the groundwork he laid down in that TED Talk was about? So the TED Talk, if you see it on YouTube, Charles basically talks about some of his seminal studies, his beginning studies on creativity. The first one, Lemon Braun 2008, is where he took um, expert professional jazz musicians. He put them in the scanner had a specially created uh, fMRI safe keyboard. To be fMRI safe, it basically has to have no metal, right? Because the Mm -hmm. fMRI scanner is So he figured out a way where he created this very special keyboard that can sit on your lap. You lie down and play and keep your head really still. Um, And basically he looked at a condition where people were allowed to uh, improvise on a given Mm -hmm. piece. Or they played uh, for the, the control condition, they played this piece that Charles wrote. He called he wrote a 12 bar blues piece called Magnetism. He gave them to them all in advance of scanning for the control condition. They just played it as is, just memorized it. And we gave them a blues bars backtrack so it sounded you know, more musical. And then for the improvisation condition, they were allowed to improvise on that same chord progression. So now they played whatever melody they wanted, but same rhythm, same tempo. Like, or actually, no, they were allowed to improvise with the rhythm too. But mm-hmm. basically, I had to do the same chord progression because they still had the same backtrack. Now they just improvised. And uh, what that paper sounds is that improvisation is a distinct brain activity, shows brain distinct brain activity from playing something that's memorized. Hmm. What you get is you have this activation of medial prefrontal cortex, which is kind of um, up here in the front of the area. And that's probably because, you know, it does take, you know, goal orientation and, and, you know, you have to be paying attention and things like that. But you also see this really interesting pattern of deactivation of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And that was thought to be associated with, you know, um, hitting flow with kind of like turning off that judgmental like area of your brain and just letting yourself go and trying to just, you know, 
mind wander. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what was really interesting is that it's not just associated with like activation or deactivation, it's that those two work together. You know, you have like this kind of goal oriented behavior, but you also have to not be very judgmental of anything that comes out. You also have to be very like mind wandering. So that's very interesting because most of the time they've shown that our default mind wandering is towards negativity. Yeah, and we're showing that actually that mind wandering is maybe imperative and, and necessary for something like improvisation. Like maybe great improvisations come out of all this mind wandering and letting your brain kind of just be at rest. And, you but know, you so. added that there's a goal, like in a goal-oriented mind wandering at the same time, right? Yeah. In musical improvisation. Yes, because in our study, you still have a goal, right? You still have yeah. to stay the same chord progression. You're still in a scanner. You still know that you have 12 bars to improvise. There's still... <laughs> right um so it's you know and it's still a complex musical activity right so right that's why you know there is some goal oriented you have to stay in the c minor blue scale yeah you know so that's why it's interesting is that there is this um you know the necessary brain activity to perform your music but you also had to have to like deactivate parts of your brain to hit flow and you know you don't judge yourself and just let your music come out uh -huh. so that was actually that was the first study that was from 2008 um, so is there any way from what you know how to apply that into general life like to be able to hit that flow state do you we kind of thought that maybe that brain activity we were seeing this very pattern of activation and deactivation is the brain activity that allows flow that 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 uh -huh. is you know, the same brain activity that's associated with Mihail's flow definition that if you hit flow you're in this state where you are able to do these very complex tasks but at the same time you're also let you know you're in the state of kind of free-floating attention so that you kind of just observe and let it go through. Um, so, yeah. So, again, I mean, you have to have some sort of, like, goal direction and a challenge to be in that state of flow, right? So you yeah. have to be a little bit challenged but not overwhelmed. Yeah, you also have to let your creative juices come out, right? And so, I mean, if I had to extrapolate from that, I would say, yeah. you know, if you're trying to improvise, yeah, let go of that critical side of your brain. Just, you know, you, you have the technical, you've been practicing all that time. You have the technical expertise to actually play your instrument. You know, the scales, you know, the rhythms, you know, the licks, then you just have to let it take over. And I think if you could just let yourself be in that state of flow where you're not trying to judge or criticize or anything, your own work, then things will come out. Do you um, think that's harder for um, classical musicians? <laughs> yeah, so you know, I'm a classical musician. Yeah, right. So if you think about it, I, I think that it's really hard for classical musicians to riff or or play jazz. Yeah, I right mean, I will, I will say that part of the reason I'm attracted to improvisation is that I'm not very good at it. But then part of that is that our musical training, at least when I was going through a conservatory, I mean, we were very much about performers, right? It was about really knowing your music, getting the notes correct, interpreting, you know, in a positive way that honors the score right so I think that the training is kind of set up for perfectionism in some uh -huh. ways yes um but that being said there's a very new wave of scholarship that shows that classical music was actually always very improvisatory like mm. Bach used to improvise tons of fugues and then mm -hmm. if you get to the classical era the Galant era in fact how they learned to compose was that they learned a lot of these stock partimenti so a partimenti is like a stock phrase or stock chord progression that you use. And the way you compose is by putting a lot of these little stock phrases together and suddenly mm -hmm. have a composition, right? So actually, historically, classical music was heavily improvisatory. Mm. But over time, you know, when we, the, the rise of the written notation score, various social cultural factors that changed, it became less improvisatory. Mm -hmm. But um, music theorists and music historians are saying that maybe we need to recapture some of that improvisatory spirit in classical music and so there's mm -hmm. a new prize of learning improvisation in classical music and mm -hmm. actually we just published a paper this year 2020 um in neuroimage on gabriella montero who's an amazing class she's a classically trained pianist uh-huh a classical piano prodigy yes but what's really interesting about her is she not only performs your standard canonical concert classical repertoire that's like the first half of the concert but then she does these very beautiful improvisations for the second half of the concert and in mm -hmm. fact she's been improvising since she was a child she's so she's a very unique case study I would say because she is both a very well-trained classical pianist but is also very comfortable improvising hers and so we improvising and so we studied and put her in the scanner and we're just looking at what happens in her brain when she's doing these improvisations and uh -huh. you know for her 
improvisation is really about activation. So right, our jazz musicians show that really interesting dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex deactivation and increasing activity in the medial prefrontal cortex area. For Gabriella, what we found is that improvisation is really about activation of the brain. And moreover, she activates all over her brain, auditory mm. areas, motor areas, emotion areas. So for her, improvisation is a really multimodal experience. Now, of course, we can't generalize. So she's like an expert improviser. Exactly. Like she's an amazing <laughs> improviser. She's a classical prodigy. I mean, we don't know how much of this is just her brain is really unique, right? Uh-huh. You know, yeah, maybe it's that classical music improvisers will improvise differently from jazz musicians. You know, that's something we could in the future probe more carefully or more extensively. There have been some studies that have done it, but people who have looked at this difference between jazz and classical training have looked at more limited um, improvisation, like shorter, you know, five melody segments or smaller segments of stuff versus we just let Gabriella do many more extensive open-ended kind of improvisation. So mm-hmm. it's to look at in the future, but yeah, I, I think the reason I'm really drawn to this lab and to studying improvisation is because I suck at it. <laughs> you know, and, I, and you know, I, every time I try to do it, I'm, I'm very scared to like make a mistake, you know? Oh, okay. And, you know, like, but the thing is, and, you know, my husband, Will, is both a classical chess, but also has some jazz training. And he's like, you know, if you make a mistake, do it again and do it again ah. and do it again and do it again until it's no longer a mistake, you know? So, awesome. And now he's a software engineer. And now he's a software engineer. <laughs> <laughs> my so, son is a cellist um, and now he's studying computer science as well. You know, I actually think that there is a lot of similarity between music um, and computer science. Because I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah, because I think they're both complex systems, right? I mean, Uh if you think about it, a musician keeps track of this very complex system of music, right? We're really into understanding the architecture and the architectonics of the compositions we're playing. And computer science is also about holding these logical structures and having memory for how they all work. So my husband has found that he he thinks it's a very natural connection to go from music, computer science. I mean, a lot of the best mathematicians in history were also amateur musicians. So I think oh. anything with a very complex system is very related to music. Um, okay. And, so, and sciences too. I mean, like I know so many doctors who play music. Exactly. Yeah. I think there are a lot of doctors and a lot of scientists who play music. Maybe, you know, maybe like your, your, your main career is being a doctor, but you still enjoy doing music because I think music, you know, the one thing that's really cool about music is it literally stimulates all parts of your brain, right? It's about emotion and sound and motor detection and pattern recognition. And you're reading a score, so it's visually stimulating too. Uh Not to mention it feels good, right? Like music that's really beautiful actually activates the limbic system in a way that feels rewarding, right? So Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised that there are a lot of scientists who are... um, musicians as well um in our lab it just happens to be that, that we made that our research interest you know we're studying, <laughs> studying how music you know is perceived and activated in the brain like what the activity in the brain looks like when we're doing certain musical activities uh-huh yeah i mean i'm fascinated by how many amateur orchestras there are by doctors oh yeah like right? the longwood medical symphony and and the, the massachusetts like the hospitals they're really good uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, I know Charles, Charles probably plays more than I do. He plays almost every night because it's soothing to him and it's a really important part of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a baby, so I don't play much anymore. <laughs> but yeah, you're going to teach your baby music, right? From so. what you're talking about with the yeah. brain development and yeah, cognitive I mean, um, advantages. Yes, absolutely. I so mean, you, I, as a scientist, you're a total believer in that, right? That, totally, that music totally. will increase cognition. And help well, I mean, kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of debate on this because people yeah. are like, oh, correlation is not causation, and that's very yes. true. A lot of these are correlational. But the can you say that in layman's terms? Right. So correlation and not causation means just because something is correlated doesn't mean that one leads to the other. So, for example, like let's say that on the full moon, more people wear red. Okay, <laughs> those are correlated, but that doesn't mean that just because it is a full moon that makes people wear red. <laughs> so that's what I mean about correlation, not causation. Um, so a lot of the studies in music cognition have been correlational, right? Like, well, we noticed that if you're, you have a lot of experience in music, you tend to be pretty good at X skill. 
So the way around these correlational studies is to do something called a longitudinal study. So a longitudinal study is that when you like randomly assign people to different groups, say someone that's doing music training and someone that's doing drama training or something like that, and then you measure what they're like before they start the training and then you keep checking on them as they go through the training. And that way you can say, no, no, this is more, more causal. Like we did this, we saw that they weren't good at it before and after they did training, they did this, right? So more and more people are trying to do longitudinal studies but uh, pragmatically, it's very hard to do, right? It's well, you could compare hard. kids who had musical training versus kids who didn't, who are, yeah, and that's be hard actually, to match up, but. Yeah, so those are known as group studies. That's really uh -huh. what most of us tend to do, um, is we do musicians versus non-musicians, or people having musical training versus non-musicians. So you have training. to make sure they're like um, socioeconomic background and all of that yeah. is very similar to control yeah. for all that. Right. So in those group studies, you have to control their age, the amount of extracurricular activities they do, their gender, their socioeconomic status. But even then, like, let's say when you do a group study like that, it's hard to tell, like those kids who do music training, is it because they are innately, you know, drawn to music? Maybe there yeah. is already something in their innate that we can't control. Yeah. Or they just had more access. They lived in a place where it was easier to get lessons compared mm -hmm. to someone else. So a group study is still not perfect is what we do because it's And also environment, their parents. Like exactly, are right. they driving them, you know, hours yeah. away to get the best music lessons or tennis lessons and then yeah. you know. And, and do you have a teacher that you connect with, right? Like what if you don't have the right teacher to nurture your talent, right? So I, you can see why it's a very complicated it story. Is. Uh -huh. I, I can't just, as a scientist, like, it's a much more complicated story than that. But having seen a lot of the research, I don't mm -hmm. think it hurts. I'm not seeing any <laughs> doing musical training, right? Only, um, but you have seen positives, increased activity and integration of... Yeah, uh, Gaiser Schlag at Boston, um, at Harvard Medical University showed that, for example, musical training, if you have had musical training, you have a bigger corpus callosum. That's the mm -hmm. active right fiber track that connects the left and the right. It's right like the highway between. Yeah, it's like that. the highway between. Mm -hmm. um, so they're thinking, oh, well, that's because musical training increases communication between the left and right hemisphere, right? You know, they also have higher gray matter in certain areas of the brain. So there, there are some positives. And I'm sure there are also some negatives to doing musical training. We just haven't maybe explored all of them, right? Because the research is still evolving. But in general, I've seen benefit from doing musical training i mean and it doesn't like you know, we don't I, know about the dose or maybe you overdose <laughs> yeah yeah I, mean, like, I think you can go badly like what if you want to do music and you get, and yeah, it's perfect, right? yeah that. So, I, I, I have to be a little circumspect in it like yeah i would never force someone to do it if they don't like it but uh -huh. if they're actually drawn to it then i think it's generally just like kind of like you know there are always let's say sports right Sports are good for us because the exercise makes us str stronger and stuff, but it's not good if you like develop injuries or you overdo it or you don't, you know, like it, right? Right. But you, also right? they've shown that um, with kids who do gymnastics or ballet, it's the same kind of training, you know, that a classical musician might have on instruments at a very young age. They also have increased um, cognition ability. Yeah. Yeah, and I would think that's probably because it's enrichment. If you think about it, music, dance, sports, you know, drama. These are all, if you think you're spending time outside your school environment, you're going to be more of kids, you get a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention, you have this, you know, structured training regimen. There will there will be benefits to all these types of training. It's just which, that, you know, which, um, yeah, and but it's neuroplasticity where, mm -hmm. you know, when they're using a lot of motor skills, for example, mm -hmm. in gymnastics or ballet yeah. and yeah. or a musical instrument, you're increasing um, the gray matter and white matter in that area. Yeah. And you're just having to use all parts of your brain in this kind of concerted way to do. Yes. Right. Exactly. So, right. So you're using all your sensory brain. Mm -hmm. You're right. using all five senses. You're trying to do something complex. You have to practice hard at it, right? Like, you know, when you start, you're not good at it. So the fact that you're putting all this structured time in, Erickson, who's a researcher, calls it deliberate practice, right? You very mistakenly yeah. get better at it. And that takes effort and attention and discipline. Those are all good things, too. Now, I should say, now that I think about it, there is one thing that has been shown to be um, bad about music, which is... Oh. If you overdo it, mm -hmm. something that can happen is known as maladaptive plasticity. And what happens is you mm -hmm. develop something called focal dystonia. So it's uh, a muscle disorder 
where it's like your your hand or other parts of your body spasm. Mm. So Leon Fleischer is a famous pianist who had focal dystonia. Mm -hmm. His whole right hand seized, and he could only play left-hand concertos for a long time. Mm. Um, they're, they're, They're thinking, although again, still being researched, but they think that stuff like focal dystonia is due to overuse, is due to practicing in not a healthy way, you know, and that you might be straining your muscles. So that is one negative side of too mm-hmm. much to cause yourself injury and focal dystonia. But yeah. again, all, you know, as a scientist, I have to say it's all being researched, but generally I think recent training is positive. And as a I mom, think, you would definitely. Yeah, if anything, I think my bias is because I'm a musician, it's easy for me to <laughs> child. I think for balance, I should increase his, you know, playing around with with uh, more athletic skills or visual arts or dancing or something else, right? But I mean, in general, any extracurricular activity is good. It's enriching, right? It's mm-hmm. enriching. Right? But of course, enriching think, for your brain, literally. Yes, but I, of course, I think music is particularly <laughs> what it does for you. Uh huh. So. so going back to somebody who's really drawn to music naturally, let's talk about Matthew Whitaker. Yeah, Matthew Whitaker is this uh, jazz prodigy. He has a really amazing story. He's blind mm-hmm. um, and has been blind uh, his whole life. And, uh, you know, his parents were very worried about him because he was, you know, at the time he was born prematurely. He had a lot of surgeries and he was, you know, um, they were worried about how he would do developmentally. But he, they noticed that he gravitated towards music. And from a very early age, he had this prodigious talent for music. Um, and now Matthew is an up and rising star in the jazz world. He actually just started at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Um, but Matthew is a really interesting case study, right? This is a yeah. blind musician who's so talented. I had a chance to watch him play. It was incredible. Yeah. But, so did he, when he was a kid, did he start playing, noodling around on a family piano? Or did they yeah, take him just, somewhere? No, he he kind of moved towards a toy piano and just started doing it. And his parents like, we didn't teach him that. I don't know. <laughs> like he could listen to something and play it, right? Right. And his first piano, so they found him a piano teacher. Uh-huh. And it was this amazing piano teacher who actually worked, I think, with a lot of other students who, who are blind. And so they have different oh. teaching techniques, right? You learn, first you learn to have, develop your ear. But then, you know, Matthew also learned to read musical scores with Braille, right? Wow. So. It's a different kind of um, learning from maybe how um, a sighted classical musician might learn. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so we actually scanned Matthew in the our fMRI scanner. He's part of a study that we're doing. We have a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts, and we're studying improvisation across art forms. So we're mm. looking at what happens in the brain of expert musical improvisers who are looked at as case studies, um, comedic improvisers, and then visual artists. So Matthew, no wonder you guys are having so much fun in these pictures you sent. (laughs) I know it's like I can't believe I get to do this. Yeah, (laughs) especially as a scientist. I know. Yeah, amazing. Okay, Um, I'm going to be around really amazing creative people, and I want to come visit your lab when when this is all over. (laughs) Yeah, let me know. Yeah, hi. So Matthew Whitaker is one of our case studies, and the reason we're doing is that. We think that maybe eminent musicians, right? Like we've been looking at all these group studies. Like if you average all these professional musicians, what happens in their brain? But maybe, you know, really amazing musicians Mm -hmm. have this very unique voice, a very Mm -hmm. unique voice, a very unique talent. And so maybe it's not serving us to average all their brains together. Because if Mm -hmm. you average all their brains together, maybe we're getting rid of all the variability, whatever makes their brain unique, right? So. For the musicians, we're getting very high, like the creme de la creme, very eminent musicians and mm-hmm. looking at each of their brains individually. Okay. And so we really tailor our tasks to that particular musician. Uh-huh. So I can't say, you know, Matthew's data is still being um, analyzed. But one thing we did is we, you know, played something he finds very interesting. So Snarky Puppy is one of his favorite bands. Uh-huh. So Snarky Puppy versus um, the monologue from Ferris Bueller, like, Anyone, anyone, right? <laughs> like what happens in his brain when he's hearing stuff that he gravitates towards versus stuff he doesn't? Uh-huh. And it's interesting, like his whole brain lit up when he got to listen to Snarky Puppy. Um, and that <laughs> not happened when listening to Ferris Bueller's model, the Ferris Bueller monologue. And moreover, what was really interesting is that his visual cortex was kind of taken over when listening. So it's almost like, and this is also part of Oh, neuro- that's so fascinating. Yeah. There's a lot of cortical reorganization. When Talk you're about neuroplasticity, right? 
Exactly. When you lose some part of your sensory abilities, another part of the brain may take over. And so let's reel back for the uh, non-science listener. So Matthew is a non-neuroscientist listener. Matthew Mm -hmm. is blind. So his Mm -hmm. visual cortex is physically there. But it doesn't work the same way as our visual cortex. And it's a huge area in the back of our brain. Mm -hmm. And his visual cortex is is activated with sound, right? With music. His visual cortex instead gets activated when he listens to really interesting music. So he he not only has his um, auditory cortex, which is the listening part, but he also has this visual cortex that Mm -hmm. is now part of his auditory cortex. Yeah, it's like his whole brain is going it's, towards Wow. Music. Wow. Yeah. I just got chills. Yeah, it's so cool. And like I said, <laughs> seminary, we're looking at all of our data. Uh, we've done a couple different scan sessions with Matthew. But yeah. So yeah. But the brain, of- like literally, you can change the physical components of the brain to do something else. Yeah. And that's the amazing thing about neuroplasticity. In general, we've seen when someone loses a function is something like you're deaf or you lose your sight, you know, that part of your brain is still there. It's, as you said, not being used for that sense anymore. So another sensory function may take over, which is exactly what happened in Matthew. He's like, he loves music so much that his visualist area of the brain got dedicated towards sound instead. Amazing. So you actually, you can see that mm-hmm. on him when you scanned him. And I know you can't tell us all of the um, data, but in mm-hmm. general, was mm-hmm. it fascinating working with him? Oh, yeah. He's the sweetest person. I mean, I just love Matthew and I love his family. Uh-huh. We've worked with him a couple of times. If you're interested in seeing our work, he was just featured on the CBS 60 Minutes. There was a segment on Matthew Whitaker. Not only yeah, Dr. Lim Charles was showing the yeah, MRI. The data. Thing, right? Yeah, so if you mm-hmm. want to see our preliminary data, you can see Charles talking about it on the 60 Minutes section. So, yeah, Matthew is one of our case studies. He, Gabriella Montero was one of our case studies, right? Because she's one of those amazing classical musicians who can improvise. And so we love this because we just feel like it really allows us to tailor our experiments to each individual. And we get to see what's really unique about each uh-huh. individual. Uh-huh. And then they just wanted to um, do it out of the goodness of their heart for science. Yeah. Like that's, what's amazing is we actually don't have our, our grant from NEA is so generous, but fMRI scanning is very expensive. I mean, it's $600 mm-hmm. an hour per scan. Wow. Uh-huh. So it's very pricey. So we couldn't, we can't afford to pay any of our participants, but they're all doing it to help science. And so I, I want to take this moment to thank all of them for doing is because if we don't have artists buying into this kind of scientific research, then we uh-huh. won't be able to do it, you know? And so part of, part of being able to find out more about the brain and why the arts are so important does mean buy-in from the artists. And so, yeah, everyone has volunteered to do it just out of the goodness of their heart. So that's thank amazing. You. And Colin Mockery. Yeah. So Colin Tell Mockery. Us about him. That must've been yeah, fun. He, that was so much fun. So <laughs> I don't know who Colin Mockery is. He is a comedic improviser from the show Whose Line Is It Anyways. I would say he's one of the great, great, great comedic improvisers. Uh-huh. And um, uh, there was a documentary film being filmed about his life, and they heard about our study and asked if they could participate. I said, we oh. were like, yeah, we would love to. Wow, so they reached out to you. Yeah, well, I mean, we were very interested already, too, but then it was all very um, uh, synergistic, I guess, uh-huh. that it worked out together. Yeah. And, Let's talk about Colin. Colin is one of our case study participants, as I was saying. Um, uh-huh. He's an amazing comedic improviser. We can throw things at him, that, and he just handles it so beautifully, things that would really throw off a lot wow. of other people, especially when trapped <laughs> in a huge, loud metal tube while you're you know, trying to do this. Um, but what was also really interesting is that Colin could do some musical activities, too. Um, he, we, he, we had him do a task where he had to alter the lyrics to famous nursery rhymes on the fly. So that's both musical improvisation and, you know, verbal comedic improvisation. So we're really excited Uh to see his data. And again, that's preliminary. I'm still analyzing it, so I can't say much. Um, Uh But yeah. So we're going to have to have you back. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Stay tuned. (laughs) Um, And as for Sammy, Sammy is uh, the CEO of... Sammy Weegent? Yep, Sammy Weegent. He is uh-huh. the CEO of Speechless, which is a local okay. San Francisco improvisation group. Um, and they uh, do a lot of consulting for the big companies like Google and Facebook and things like that, teaching improv. 
and public. Why, why does Google and Facebook want to learn improv? Um, because I mean, I can guess, but I'm just asking. I think improvisation really in, improv, um, improves your communication skills. Like if you're, if you wow. think about it, public speaking and communicating your ideas, these are fears people have, but it's also yes. imperative <laughs> to be good at it, right? If you are yes. giving big talks or even department meetings. So they hire uh, speechless to help work with their workers to get them better at learning to speak and communicate on the fly and things like that. Um, so Sammy and... Oh, are you clicking something? Yeah, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. So I feel like such a wicked person when I do these. I'm like, stop that. <laughs> You're clicking something. I didn't you hear that. Sorry. <laughs> so speechless, is it improvisation comedy or is it just everything improv improv, everything okay so they bring in comedy into it i want to take that class anthony veneziale is the co-founder speechless and he's amazing he was just on broadway freestyle love supreme with um miranda was just on broadway and anthony was on that with him so wow well, I think really right now everyone's finding that with coronavirus and the kind of uncertainty and stress that we are all feeling that we could use some humor, some, you know, improvisation is really important for how well we are able to adapt to our changing circumstances, right? Like uh-huh. right now we are all having to improvise in our lives on multiple yes. levels, right? So yeah. I think really part of, we find improvisation to be a creative process and it's certainly amazing when elevated to art the way these artists do. But at the same time, it's also ubiquitous. It's everyday life. I mean, and it's we, a human process. Exactly. If we didn't have improvisation, we wouldn't have anything around us, like including yeah. everything we're using right now. Exactly. Like it's the foundation of invention, right? It's the foundation yes. of invention. It's the foundation of our being able to speak to each other right now without a script, right? So I think improvisation is this very fundamental human activity, actually. Uh-huh. And uh, Sammy and Anthony reached out to our lab and we decided to do an fMRI experiment on comedy improvisation. And so Sammy, because he was one of our pilot subjects because he helped design all the paradigms with us. We essentially adapted real world improvisation, you know, warm up games and actual, you know, activities that they did. And we adapted them for the scanner. So stay uh-huh. tuned. That data is also coming out soon. That but, sounds uh, like fun. Yeah, sneak preview is improv- verbal comedic improvisation is definitely different from saying something by rote or by memory. And uh-huh. you see kind of different patterns of brain activity depending on the particular um, game you're playing. So Okay, yeah. so when we find out more about this, will we be able to, let's say, teach someone how to do it on purpose, deliberately increase your level of improvisation? I don't know. Like, I don't think we have that kind of volitional control over our brains per se, but I do think that, you know, what we hope from having this study is that this shows people that improvisation is good for, you know, your life, for it is a different brain state and that hopefully everyone will want to be interested in learning. Well, you can increase it. I mean, all these people who are excellent at doing that, right? They've been practicing for many, many years and they've been deliberately doing these improv classes. Exactly. And yeah, Sammy and Anthony take students who are complete beginners and they teach you how to do. I mean, Sammy has even been helping me. Like I <laughs> I now improvise all of my scientific talks because You I you improvise the one you did at Juilliard, you said. I did. I did. And I nobody would had, ever know. I kind of knew what I was going to say. Like I knew what the scientific content was. But yeah, the words just kept changing each time I said it. So Uh-huh. And so he's yeah. teaching you um what does he do with you? What does so he do? What, uh, so basically, one thing I've learned, like if you're going to give lectures and you want to improvise them, is you you have to practice it. Like that's, I mean, it sounds weird to practice your improvisation, but that's true. You kind of okay. generally know what you're going to do it, but you do several runs. You uh-huh. know, you do it several times, and yeah, maybe it comes out slightly different. But something he does is there's you will maybe maybe record yourself as you're doing it those couple uh-huh. times and. You'll figure out what sound bites sound good, and maybe you work that into the next practice run that you do. And over time, with more practice, even though it's not scripted, you start to get better at communicating your ideas. You know, you, you kind of knew what phrases to use or the pacing you need to use. You know, and so um, interesting. I used to um, when I started giving lectures, I used to record myself and listen to myself yeah, on my iPhone. Then, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's the kind of thing learning how to learn like just recording yourself and using it practicing you practice your improvisation um did he have you visualize things hmm. not so much um i think it really depends on each individual like uh-huh. if you're the type of person that the visualization really helps i'm sure he would um 
for me, it was mostly just practicing the cadence of my speech. I mean, something you can probably tell from how I talk right now. I'm a fast speaker. <laughs> you so learning fast, to- yes. And you're really brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. That's very kind of you. So I just, I have to learn to speak slower. And to all your podcast listeners, I'm really <laughs> fast. I am from the East Coast. So <laughs> I still speak really fast. No, so but you I- also speak very fast, but uh, it's scientific language. I mean, you're so smart. I guess he was teaching you how to slow it down a little. Is that what he yes. was doing? Yes, I think that's okay. really what um, a lot of these uh, improv teachers are great at is that, you know, scientists have a way of talking to other scientists. We use mm-hmm. jargon, right? Of course. Really, we and we to like learn- to abbreviate everything. Yeah, but we need to learn how to communicate a story to people who are non-scientists. And so yeah. really, it's like teaching me how the story, the narrative, like how to make it sound um, when I'm communicating, like I'm not just speaking to a bunch of other scientists, you know? Uh-huh. So like really how to tell a good story, how to not use jargon. Uh-huh. You know, something when I was doing the Juilliard talk, mm-hmm. I had people helping me in our in our warm-up session. We had, we practiced me giving a speech and it was it was funny I was joking that I felt like I was delivering a monologue because I had a huge concert hall and I was like I don't know where to look like where do I look where do I move and I and you know and they were like very much emphasizing that make sure you deliver your consonants do not drop your consonants if you use a scientific word like functional magnetic resonance imaging you need to say it and then pause a little so people will understand that scientific um, jargon. So uh-huh. yeah, I, I've learned a lot of tips from working with, you know, drama coaches and improvising coaches. And I've been very lucky. I mean, that's also one of the reasons I love this work. I love, I mean, I just uh-huh. love creative people. They're just you have an so amazing cool. job. <laughs> I do. I do. So, <laughs> but you're amazing too. But so they coached you before you went on stage. Mm-hmm. Just that yeah, same day though. Yeah, that same day at 3 p.m. <laughs> and how long did how long did Sammy and Anthony coach you? Uh, but that was for a different talk. That was for oh, a mini. Okay. That was probably under an hour. We just oh, practiced. okay. So you had short coaching sessions, basically, yeah. that helped you. And I mean, you were amazing on the Juilliard stage. And Thank you had you. nothing. You were just walking around. There was no, you know, props or anything. I mean, part of what's helped is that, as we talked before, I'm a musician and I'm a performer and I love giving talks. I actually love public speaking, which I know is really weird. My job is to entertain and educate and communicate. And I love that. I mean, that's what's the basis of being a performer as a pianist. Right. So So you used to be on stage all the time as a performance, right, as a competition. So this is, is this easier than a piano competition, speaking in public then? (laughs) Relatively. I mean, I I was... I'm not a nervous performer. I was actually a pretty calm pianist, but I would uh-huh. have memory slips, which is awful. So. Oh, yeah. I know about those. Yeah. That can be kind of difficult. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I find it much easier to give a talk. <laughs> That's like the musician's nightmare, right? Yeah. Memory slips? Yes. How do you recover from that? Actually, I used to improvise. I would just make it <laughs> until I came back to where I'm supposed to be. I love it. I just I, love I just it. learned to cover. Maybe because I made mistakes so often, I actually got pretty. <laughs> so you don't suck at improvisation. I guess not in that sense. <laughs> but forced to, I will. <laughs> okay. All right. So the last thing I wanted to talk about was this summer college student. So rotating through your lab yeah. that looks like fun yeah. what was that about well charles is an amazing mentor and he loves nurturing the next generation of scientists and so uh, uh-huh. in the past we've had a lot of uh medical students and summer students who are interested in music cognition work in our lab last summer was a particularly busy summer we had um five college students and wow yeah so it was it was pretty busy um but yeah. how long were they there for about two three months Wow. Yes. And did they help you or did they hurt you? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Were they interns? Were they helping you? Yes. We had them help us on things that had to get done, scoring, you know, psycho- the cognitive assessments. With each of them, uh-huh. they each kind of took one of these eminent artists and I said, well, dream about it. If you could test X artist, what would you have them do? What do you think plays to their strengths? You know, and so they got kind of a taste of what it's like to be in a lab. So important that you have you're mentoring people like that. I think it's, um, you know, we're hoping to encourage them and that maybe they'll come back to work in the lab. And Well, what do they have to be interested in to qualify? 
if someone listening is interested? Well, I would say in general, you know, people who want to do music cognition tend to have an interest in music, like have some music background as well as some science background. But I think Uh both Charles and I think the most important quality is um, not only intellectual curiosity, but also that you are an independent thinker, that you can work independently. Um, Charles mentoring style is that he kind of wants to see how we all do by, he's not going to hover over you. He kind of expects they, well, he wants you to improvise. Yeah. He <laughs> to be like independent. And you know, part of that uh-huh. is too, Charles is really busy. I mean, he's a full-time physician. <laughs> so he's a surgeon. Awesome. He is the head of our ENT, you know, the, our department, he's the head of the cochlear implant center. Wow. So he expects all of us to work very independently. And so I think, mm-hmm. um, I think in general, and maybe this is just true of, being in academia, uh-huh. I think you need to be an independent thinker. You need to learn how to, you have to be, learn how to learn. You have to learn how to teach yourself, how to take initiative, how to work independently. That's all stuff that I feel like I, there was every day in research, I confront something I don't know how to do. Uh-huh. I mean, if you think about it, my postdoc is in doing fMRI analysis and my PhD was in EEG. So I knew nothing about fMRI. In fact, when I started working with Charles, I knew nothing about fMRI and I knew nothing about cochlear implants. So I had to sit down that first year and learn as much as I can, right? So I think- And fMRI, we're saying functional MRI scan, magnetic resonance imaging, imaging, where you can see inside someone's brain and see what parts of your brain are lighting up due to the blood flow. Yeah, as you're doing a particular activity, right? That's functional compared to a normal MRI. So a medical Uh MRI, maybe they just want to look at your leg or your brain or your- neck or whatever. But for us, we want to say what's happening in your brain as you're doing a particular activity. Um, mm-hmm. so, so you sat down and you learned all about yeah, it. And I think that's just part of being an academic every day. I'm doing things I don't know how to do. You know, you're always learning. And I think <laughs> wanting to be in research in general or science in general, you have to be really curious. You want to have to want to learn. And you, Uh you know, even if you don't know how to do it, you accept the challenge and you try it anyways, and you figure out a way. (laughs) (laughs) What about um, during the COVID time now? People are having to learn on their own. All the kids are doing school online. I know. I mean, I think that is, yeah, and it's a huge change. And I think, you know, we've talked about our mental health and I I think it's adjusting to all of this change has been huge. And I think, learning online right you were mentioning you were about to scream yeah about your little being home with your kid and my baby more than anything he's my life trying (laughs) to take care of him and work and my husband work it's like more than three jobs trying to do that (laughs) hard like for us to do this podcast my poor sick husband is trying to watch the baby and like we're throwing the ipad at him to be able to find some quiet time to talk you know so but that's also maybe the reality of being working parents nowadays um so you're working full time from home? Yes. So they they've shut down right. the labs. So all the right? labs at UCSF have been shut down, but we're all being trying uh-huh. to do whatever activities we can do that don't use our labs. So writing, uh, this is a good time for people to learn different skills, you know, statistical uh-huh. stats at analysis, Python, programming. I mean, we're just learning again, we're all learning to adapt. Like we this is the time to take opportunity to maybe do something you wouldn't normally have time to do. And as for all the kids, yeah, I totally sympathize. It's really hard to go from seeing your friends every day, being in school, having the structure, and then trying to do it all by yourself. But it's also an opportunity. I mean, you may learn more this way. You never know. Like my husband, for example, like I'm someone who loves school. I love, I would be a permanent student forever if I could. He hates hates formal education. He is an amazing autodidact. So he teaches him stuff. stuff. When Uh When he pivoted from cello to software engineering, we basically went to the Baltimore Public Library, checked out 10 books, and he sat there and taught himself everything. What? Yeah. So he has no formal training. Wow. He's just taught himself everything, then learned on the job, keeps learning new languages, programming languages. So I think I, what I would say to everyone is you don't have to, you can, as long as you're a good learner, as long as you're curious and you're willing to learn however way you learn, you will, you will find a way to do what you need to do. And so for all the kids, you know, we both Will and I are people. I mean, I probably rely more on formal education as structure more than Will does. Will is a very good autodidact. But I mean, well, I think that, um, with all the online schools these days, it's so much easier to get all the information yeah. and learn what you want to learn. Right. And I have to be honest with you, I'm probably better without that structure as well. Mm-hmm. I- Maybe because I'm older. I mean, different people but, and also uh, temperament, right? I'm sure different people work. Like some people don't like structure imposed on them, or this very like 
road to approach to learning. And you're right. Part of it is that we now have amazing resources, YouTube, Coursera, you know, we can, you could access the live cams on the Monterey Aquarium. So I'm still trying to teach my baby about tropical fish, you know, like (laughs) in some ways, yes. Like I will say too, like, what is that necessity is the mother of invention? Like being forced to have our old structure, our old habits go away in some ways can be good. You can form new habits. You can explore new ways of doing things. And I mean, someone like me, who's very much into habits, finds it very, like, there's temperamentally, I'm like, oh, I miss the old way of doing things. But at the same time, what we've learned from improvisation is that it's a lot of good that comes out of changing your path, not having set expectations on how things should be. Um, at the same mm-hmm. time, I think I would tell everyone, be gentle on yourself. You know, the life, life has changed a lot. Even we're all we're, oh, yeah. we're all trying to make do. There are days where I find I'm struggling to do anything, you know. So I think that's just normal. So fascinated that your husband taught himself um, software development. I know he's an inspiration. Like I wish I was that smart, but I'm not. Did he get his major in? He in music. In music, he has a bachelor's degree in cello performance. <laughs> so, so to all those musicians out there, you can do whatever you want. You can be anything you want to be. <laughs> <laughs> and he and he just went to the library. Yeah, he went to the library and started it. That got him his first internship, and then he worked really hard. And on the job, he always makes sure to learn new languages, learn new skills. He's always he's a learner. That's basically what but it to is. To get a job or an internship, you don't need to have a computer science degree. At least back then, I think times have changed. You have to remember back then it was two thousand. Yeah, it was 2008. So the times are different. But let's say you don't have a bachelor's degree, you know, then you can do there's all these boot camps, you know, short week boot camps to teach you, you can teach yourself via Coursera, you can teach yourself, I'm was trying to learn Python through learn Python the hard way, you know, so by Zed Shaw. So like, you could teach yourself too, and at least have some basics. And then you can always fill it in. I think we're all just, you know, finding new ways to adapt to the new normal. that this this is the new normal. Oh, my gosh, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, and I'm like, What's happening? Is it over? Like, is this a dream? No, <laughs> that's the something I've been struggling with too. Like, Will is much—he's much better. Is he an introvert? Like, this is just a new. He's an introvert. Okay, so he's yeah. happy. So he seemed really happy yeah, when I fine. met him before. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's fine. He's like, you know, I'm an extrovert, but I'm actually fine too because I'm a homebody and I always have ways to find ways to occupy my brain and learn something. <laughs> but like, I think. You know, I think it's just, I, I think we all are feeling that overarching anxiety, yeah. the uncertainty, right? Yeah. We all want to know, well, when will this end? And I miss the old normal, but more and more, I think I'm trying to find peace with this is the new normal. Where can I find my joy mm-hmm. and happiness in right now? And at least for most parents, and I think most of us are just saying, what can I do right now? Like I say, what can I do this one hour? What can I do right now that will make the next moment better? You know, and if I keep it down to just that, and not trying to project to the future, it's a little easier to deal with. Well, you have given me joy today. Oh, so you've given me joy today <laughs> too. It's so nice to talk to another adult. <laughs> well, Hi, baby. Hi, baby. Oh, bye. All right. I'll All right. Well, we'll talk soon. Okay. Let me know if you need more. That was Dr. Karen Chan Barrett, mom, neuroscientist, classical pianist, also faculty at San Francisco Conservatory of Music, showing us that STEM is really STEAM, and you can definitely excel at more than one thing in life. And yes, lifestyle matters. Find out more about Karen and Dr. Charles Lim's Music and Perception Lab and Renee Fleming's work in the show notes at mindbodyspace.com, podcast episode number 62. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can email me at podcast at mindbodyspace.com with questions for myself or my guests for the new Tuesday Q&A segment starting in 2021. This is Dr. Juna signing off, wishing you and your loved ones wellness.